I'm Amber Redmond, and I've been coming to North Point since 2016. That Easter, the, my first Easter at North Point, they gave out the book A Case for Easter. And so I took the book home, and it was like the first Easter ever when I didn't have 30 people coming to my house. So I took it home, and I got in my big chair, and I read the book because it's pretty short. So I read it all that day. In reading the book, it just brought so many things that I didn't even know about the Bible and about Jesus and about God's character. It changed everything about my faith from then on out because I felt compelled to read the Gospels for the first time. I felt compelled to figure out why Jesus would come and what that even meant for me. And I was confused about God's character because I had grown up thinking that he was just this all-powerful, kind of a mean father in the sky. It's so weird to say now, but that's really what I thought. And so when I started reading the Gospels after reading the case for Easter and looking into who Jesus was and what that meant for God's character, it just brought my faith to a completely different thing. Um, no matter how you look into who he was, you are faced with God's character over and over again. And, and what's true about God's character. I think that reading the book made it so that I couldn't ignore who God was. Woohoo! Give it up for Amber. Yeah. Hey, let me just let me just piggyback on that just for a second. This this is the book. It's not very big, right? Um, Tim, uh, one of our staff guys that uh, actually videoed that interview um, afterwards, after talking to Amber, said, "I need to read that book." So he came in this week and he said. I read that book, and he said, for the first time, I get it at a different level. So I grew up in church, and I knew that you always were supposed to um, believe in the resurrection. That's just what you did as a follower of Jesus. But the book made me think through the ramifications of that in a new way. So uh, we've got one, uh, one, one per family, if you would. We've got another service coming after this. Um, uh, if we end up with extra and you want extra copies this week, shoot us an email, and, and we'll get that done for you. But that's a tool that we want you to use. There are some things in life that are just too hard to comprehend, too hard to believe, right? Uh, the, the story just a few years ago about the guy in Colorado that's digging his yard and discovers buried treasure in his yard, right? That's like, yeah, yeah sure, right. Um, the, or, the, or the person that, that gets the letter from the attorney that says, you really did have a rich uncle, and they left you a whole bunch of money, um, yeah, right. One of the stories that's hard for me to believe is that in 1835, there was a war between the state of Ohio and the territory of Michigan. Over Toledo. Uh, what's, what's that about? But, uh, probably my favorite story that's just hard to wrap my brain around, hard to comprehend, happened in 1985 in Washington, D.C. Deb and I had just moved uh, there in the summer of, of 85, so I remember this re really well. In December of that year, um, there was a mailing that went out uh, that went out to 3,000 um, fugitives, people who had 5,000 um, warrants for their arrest. And they went out 
um, from the U.S. Marshal Service. The invitation didn't say it was from the Marshal Service. It, it was an invitation to these people at their last known address to go attend a Washington Redskins football game, to come to a brunch at the convention center and to go to the Redskins game. This is 1985. So this is the era of Joe Gibbs, Joe Theismann, John Riggins, uh, Art Monk, Daryl Green, all those guys. The Redskins had had 150 straight sellouts, and they had a 20-year waiting list for season tickets. Uh, you know, it, it, it was a big deal. You've won two free tickets to the Redskins game. Um, and they were seeing the Bengals. So, that, you know, that was great. Anyway, anyway so, uh, so this letter comes from the flagship international sports television station, a brand new station that was going to go. The acronym for that is FIST. Um, there's a similar acronym uh, for the marshals called the Fugitive Investigative Strike Team. Uh, fun little deal there. And the president of, of, the, of the sports television network was a guy named, uh, listed on the, on the invitation, was a guy named I. Michael um, Detnall, which if you take his name and spell it backwards and use the initials, I am wanted. And they were supposed to call this number if they got the invitation and wanted the tickets. They were supposed to call this number and ask for Marcus Cran, his last name spelled backwards. Narc, right? Right? <laughs> 124 people accepted these tickets, came to the convention center, and they had this big party for them, had the brunch, brought them into this room to give them their tickets, and when they came into that room, it was surrounded by U.S. Marshals, and they got an all-expense-paid ticket to the D.C. jail, uh, where they were uh, dealt with accordingly. Um, you know, it's one of those things that that story is just kind of beyond belief, Right? Um, there's a saying that we use all the time. If something seems too good to be true, it probably is. You know, it probably is. But sometimes there are things that happen that seem too crazy to believe. That we think there's no way that can, that, that can be true. And yet it is. The story of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, I think, is one of those things it seems impossible. It seems beyond belief. But what if it's true? What if it's really true? This morning on Easter Sunday, 2019, I want to take some time and just explore that question. I want to look at what, at what the scripture says. I want to talk about what Jesus experienced. Because if it's true, if the crucifixion is true, if the resurrection is true. Easter is about a lot more than chocolate bunnies and marshmallow peeps. Easter is about a lot more than family gatherings and Easter egg hunts. Easter is about a lot more than any of the trappings that we have associated culturally with Easter. Here's how a man named Luke, who was tasked with discovering the truth about these events, described it. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared for Jesus' body and went to the tomb. They found that the stone that had been rolled over the tomb had been rolled away. But when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 disciples and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women. It was beyond belief because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Another writer, probably the closest friend of Jesus, describes the disbelief of Mary, the first person to the tomb that Sunday morning. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, um, why is it that you're crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I'll go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in, Arama in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Why was it so hard for Mary, for the, the women, for the disciples, to believe that Jesus was alive? Because two days earlier, Jesus had died a horribly cruel and violent death. They had witnessed it. I don't, think, I don't think many of us grasp how terrible that death was, the crucifixion of Jesus. We see, we see a crucifix, a, a gold Jesus on a gold cross, and we think, oh, man, that, that poor man, he, it must have been tough to die the way that he did. Or we think, you know what, everybody dies. Can, the, can a crucifixion really be that much difficult than any other kind of death? I want to take some time and just talk about what happened at the crucifixion this morning to help us grasp the severity of what Jesus went through and why he experienced it. I, I, when I began to think about and, and read the scripture and, and think about what he experienced, the, the first part of it that really struck me was not the physical part. We'll talk about that in a moment. It was the mental anguish. It was the emotional and psychological impact on Jesus because when he was arrested on Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew at that point in time that he was being set up. He knew that, the, that, that, that there were no charges that were legitimate, that there was no reason for him to be arrested. And that had to weigh on him. He knew that there was a conspiracy, a legitimate conspiracy, a group of people that gotten together and said um, they had covered up the truth in order for Jesus to be arrested. He knew that it was coming from religious leaders, but, the, 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 but that the issue was not about religion. It was not about theology at all. It was about power, that these religious leaders recognized that more and more people were following Jesus and were not paying attention to them, and they said, it's got to stop. So they set out to kill Jesus. When he's in the garden and this group of people come to him, they, they come around him, 
the sign that Jesus is who he said he is, is that one of his disciples comes and kisses him. An intimate expression used by someone that Jesus had called, Jesus had chosen, Jesus had picked out, and Jesus had entrusted. Jesus had poured three years of his life into this guy, and he had made him the treasure of the group. He was the guy who was in charge of the money for the disciples, for the followers of Jesus. He was betrayed by someone that he knew and loved. The weight mentally and emotionally on Jesus had to be huge. When he was arrested in the garden, all of his disciples fled for their lives. These guys that just a few weeks before had said, when Jesus said, who do you say I am? And they said, you know what? You're the Messiah. You are the son of God. You're the Messiah of the world. When they had come to Jerusalem, they had started the path to Jerusalem. Jesus said, I've got to go to Jerusalem to die. And the disciples had said, you know what? We'll go with you. We will die with you. When push came to shove and he was arrested, all of them fled. They fled for their lives. Jesus recognized that he was convicted. He was convicted by the two political leaders that that could have set him free, and they both said he's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong, anything that's worthy of crucifixion. And yet, because of their fear of the people, they authorized his crucifixion. The humiliation that Jesus experienced in the crucifixion I think was probably as strong as the physical assault that he experienced. When you think about the cross, you see Jesus on the cross. He's always wearing a loincloth, right? That was not, that was not characteristic of Roman crucifixions. When Rome crucified someone, their goal was to humiliate that person, to make them, seem, to make them a display that people would despise. And part of what they did was that they stripped him naked and set him on the cross to be exposed to everyone who looked up there. That's what Jesus would have experienced, that humiliation. Can you imagine, just think for a second about the rejection, the betrayal, the isolation, the humiliation that Jesus experienced The physical nature of his crucifixion was horrible as well. When Pilate ultimately says, okay, you can crucify him, he sentences him first to be scourged, to be flogged is the word that's there in Scripture. What would that look like? Uh, uh, A person who was flogged would have his feet um, chained to some post in back and then his hands chained to a stake that, that was there out front. So his back was fully extended and fully exposed. And then with the whip, the, the instrument that was used, it, it had a handle, it had multiple thongs of leather, leather and tied into that leather were pieces of bone or metal or, um, or, or, uh, or glass stones. And so that when that whip came down on their back, the first few blows were, were designed to just simply kind of tenderize that back to soften it up. And with each successive lash, those pieces of metal and bone would dig into the flesh. And when the whip was pulled back, it would grab at and pull pieces of the flesh, the blood, out of that person's back. Historians tell us that it was not uncommon when someone was flogged in this way 
for it to fully expose their spinal column, for people to be able to see their spinal column and to be able to see their internal organs because the muscles that surrounded their back were so fully destroyed. Think for a second about the blood loss as well as the pain that Jesus experienced in that. When the flogging stopped, the Roman soldiers at that point took his clothes off him, stripped him naked in front of everyone, put a purple robe on him. They put a staff in his hand to act as though it was a scepter, and they fashioned out of, a, out of the branches of a tree that's there uh, that has about three-inch-long spikes, this crown of thorns, shoved it on his head, and, and, and bowed down and said, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! When they got tired of that, they took the staff that was in Jesus' hand and began to beat him over the head with the staff. Are you having some sense of what Jesus went through? When that was done, when they were tired of that, they took Jesus and strapped his arms to the cross piece that would used on the cross. It was a piece of wood, a plank of wood that probably weighed about 100 pounds. And Jesus' task was to carry that about 200 yards from the place where he had been beaten to Golgotha. He couldn't do it. He didn't have the physical strength to be able to do it because of the flogging, because of the blood loss. And so the guards pull Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd to come and carry that for him as Jesus makes that walk to Golgotha, staggering, using all of his energy to get there. Once they get to Golgotha, they lay that cross piece down, they lay Jesus down, and they drive nails into his hands and into his feet. Uh, If if you can, just feel in between your radius and ulna in your arm right now. There's there's two bones that are there. They would have driven the spike in between those two bones so that the arms couldn't come down, so so that it couldn't pull the flesh away. It was framed by those bones. There's a nerve, doctors tell us, that's right there. And when that spike would have gone through um, in, into that hollow place in between the two bones, it would have hit that nerve and sent an electric jolt through Jesus' body that just would have reverberated on each side. So it wouldn't have just been the nails going in and the pain of that. It, there would have been this shock that, went, that just cascaded through his body. They nailed his feet to the bottom of the cross, which was important because um, otherwise, once Jesus was extended on the cross, he wouldn't be able to breathe. He needed to have his feet jammed into the bottom of the cross so that he could push himself up. Once the cross was put together and it was lifted up and set down into the hole with Jesus on it, when that hit that hole, it would have jarred all of that pain, all of the pain on Jesus' back, all the pain in his hands and his feet. And for the next several hours, Jesus would have struggled to breathe. He would have been dehydrated. He would have experienced incredible blood loss. His heart would have been racing to try and maintain his life, and his lungs would have begun to collapse. Jesus, in, about, in a period of about three hours, dies on the cross. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus need to do that? Because God had set in place this this principle that for sin, there had to be a sacrifice. And Jesus, in that moment, became the perfect sacrifice for us. He took our sin on himself. It's understandable why we've made the cross, the crucifix, into a piece of jewelry. 
because it reminds us of the price that Jesus paid for us. But understand this, you wouldn't want a piece of jewelry that fully depicted what Jesus went through because it was so gruesome. The level of torture he experienced is is hard to comprehend. It's beyond belief. But the resurrection, I think, is equally hard to believe. It's easy to come to church this morning and with followers of Jesus over the last 2,000 years to say, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And to re- it's easy to do that, but I, don't, I think that it's not very often that we contemplate, that we think about the rational, objective reasons to believe that the resurrection is true. One of the reasons why, why I think that the resurrection is true is because as we just read through those two accounts, the people who were closest to, to Jesus didn't believe it when it really happened. Nobody believed there was no body, right? They didn't get it. They missed it. Uh, if it was a setup, if it was a fable, if it was a story that someone would have constructed, they, there would have been a character in the story who would have said, I knew it. I knew it all along. I knew that that was going to happen, right? That's not the case. Mary sees Jesus and it doesn't make sense. Two guys walk with Jesus six miles that day and they don't, they don't think that it's Jesus because they didn't comprehend that the resurrection was possible. Why are, why are we giving away copies of this book? Because it's critical, whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're a skeptic, to ask yourself the question, could it really be true? This book was written by a... By a uh, a writer for the Chicago Tribune, an investigative reporter that set out to disprove the resurrection, to set out to say there's no way that this could have happened, to look at the evidence. That's why we want you to read that book. Because if the resurrection is real, if the resurrection is real, then there's a purpose for Jesus' death. If the resurrection is real, it means that my existence does not end when I die. If the resurrection is real, it means that that cancer sentence that I've been given is really just an earlier ticket into eternity, into the presence of Jesus. If the resurrection is real, it means that my life has incredible importance to God, that I matter to him, far more important than making money, far more important than what happens in my job, far more important than me being a dad or a husband, a mom or a wife. If the resurrection is real, it changes everything because it means that I can be forgiven of every horrible thing that's happened in my life. For a number of years, we've had a ministry here at North Point um, uh, to women who have experienced an abortion in their past. They made a decision at some point in time to end a pregnancy. And since that time, they've struggled with with the weight of that decision, with guilt, with shame, with pain. Um, they've, they've been afraid that if their sin ever became found out, that they would be isolated, that the church would reject them, that they wouldn't be good enough to be in God's presence. Their perspective has been, it's a sin that's too big to be forgiven. Even though Jesus experienced the horrors of the cross, somehow that particular sin is too much to be fully forgiven. It's bigger than than lying or stealing, even than any kind of sexual sin. The ministry is called Awaken because it's designed 
to bring life back to a part of their soul that they had accepted as long since dead. The, the participants of Awaken are, are completely confidential. I, we typically in the office, we don't even know when the group meets. We don't know how many people are there. We don't know who goes because, because it's such a scary thing for them. Uh, they just finished a session, and I talked to Amy Beltran, who leads our Awakened ministry, and I said, Amy, because we're talking about this concept of beyond belief on Easter morning, is there any way one of those women might be willing to share their story? That forgiveness is possible no matter what has happened in your past. Five of the women said, absolutely, I'd love to be a part of that. I'm, I'm sharing a part of their story this morning. We're going to watch it on video in just a second. Because it's not really the story of post-abortive women. It's the story of anyone who thinks that sin in their past is too big for God to forgive. It's the story of anyone who has hidden and buried something in their past, hoping that it will never be discovered. It's the story of anyone who thinks, you know what, it's better for me to go to my grave with this sin than it is for it to be exposed. The video was just shot a couple of weeks ago. I want you to take a look on screen and watch. So with Easter coming up, um, let's talk about um, how this Easter is going to be special. How this Easter is going to be different for you all. Um, my first Easter um, after going through the Awaken class is phenomenal. Um, I think of myself as being, as like sitting in that cell with, and me being Barabbas. And and the soldier coming up and going, you know, no, you're set free. Jesus is going to pay your price. And um, in my head, I'm thinking, I run up to him and I'm going, no, you can't. My sin was too big. And he's like, no, he's, he's carrying the cross and he's covered with blood and he has the thorns in his head, the crown of thorns on his head. And he opens his arms wide and he said, I love you this much. And they nail him to the cross. You know, it's so much more personable. Um, you know, and I feel like, he opened my eyes for the first time when Jesus comes back after he raises from the dead and he, he talks to the disciples, but God hides the fact that he's Jesus immediately. It isn't until he breaks the bread. Then they realize he's Jesus. And their eyes were opened. And I'm thinking, my eyes are open for the first time. My eyes are like open. There isn't self-hate. There isn't this total unforgiveness that I'm totally forgiven. That all of my sins and my sorrow weighed him down and he took them to the cross. Yeah. Well, and I think something we've all said throughout this entire process is you're at this point of, I know Christ has forgiven me, but he shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Like, right. he, it was too much. You know, he doesn't understand. And I just, I've been listening to the Bible, um, and that also has just brought on a whole other impact. I'm um, just listening to the crucifixion. Um, I just, I burst into tears because it's, you know, after after being healed and realizing, you know, that's what he died on the cross for. You know, with the sin that I have dealt with and been just burdened with my entire life, like, I wasn't meant to carry that burden alone. Right. And just realizing, you know, going into the Easter season of just this chance to come together um, with a church that... I just love, mm -hmm. and people that are just rejoicing that Christ is risen. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be a mess on Easter. I'm so excited, <laughs> but I'm going to be a mess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah.
I think for me, it's all about the relationship. So the change that happened with me knowing that he loves me and the, the, the mercy and grace that he gave me, if I had not gotten to know him, if I had not revealed myself, even though he knew, I didn't know he knew. Mm -hmm. So that whole relationship with him really changed. And so now with Easter, it's, it's just, it's like I know him. And then, you know, through this, I realized it's not that I was good enough for God to forgive. It was that he was good enough. Mm -hmm. It was him. It was all about him doing it. It had nothing to do with what I did. Anything that I could have laid at his feet, it wasn't that he was going to forgive me because I was good. It was because he was good. Right. So, yeah, because of his glory, we all have a beautiful story. Mm -hmm. exactly. And again, exactly. not that it's just abortion in our lives because we're all sinful, you know, because of we come in the world that way. But mm -hmm. until when you've been through it and and you get that healing I mean that that's to me it's a pretty it's a pretty big healing mm -hmm. um, and and yes every Easter is remembering mm -hmm. why he did what he did because the church is all about Christ his <laughs> crucifixion and resurrection right and eternal life and but again it's it's yeah every Easter is awesome because mm -hmm. of what he did on the cross mm -hmm. for sure if, if you're interested in hearing more of their story, we're going to post this week a 16-minute um, segment that doesn't include any of this footage of them telling their stories. It's just incredibly powerful. You know, while the, while the, the horrors of the crucifixion are hard to comprehend, hard to to believe, hard to accept. And the resurrection, until you really do the fact-finding, it's, it's hard to believe that that could happen, that, that somebody could come back to life. The thing that truly is beyond belief is that the God of the universe loves us individually, incredibly, so much that he sent his son to earth to take our punishment on himself, so that we could be completely forgiven, not mostly forgiven, not forgiven of the common everyday sin kind of stuff, but forgiven of the deepest and darkest, most horribly hidden secrets in our lives. The crucifixion and resurrection are so that our addiction, our abuse, our rape and murder and hatred, our affairs could be wiped out completely in his sight. The resurrection of Jesus brings a clean slate, a new life, a fresh hope. It brings light that blasts into the dark recesses of our lives because of Jesus. Jesus is alive. Jesus is Alive. Say that with me. Jesus is alive. That changes everything. He frees us from the power of sin. He frees us from the consequences of sin. He frees us from the guilt of sin. He frees us from the pain of our sin. 
and he frees us from the fear of death. One day, one day, we will stand in God's presence, perfect and clean, with no regrets, no guilt, no shame. Why? Because Jesus is alive. One day, one day, hurtful choices will be eliminated forever. Deceit will be gone. There will be no more broken relationships. We will experience joy and peace and patience like we've never imagined. Why? Because Jesus is alive. One day, one day, sickness and disease and death will be no more. Pain and grief will be eradicated. Every moment will be sweeter than anything we can even imagine on this side of eternity. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Luke, in, in describing some stuff that happened in the first century, uh, some years after Jesus' resurrection, wrote this, these words. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification that you weren't able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if somebody told you. The thing that makes the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus so hard to believe is not whether or not it could happen. Historical evidence tells us that both did happen. The thing that makes it hard to believe is that if it's real, everything in your life is different. Not can be different, not should be different. Everything in your life is different if Jesus is alive. But you have to accept it. You've got to believe it. You've got to allow that reality to seep into every corner of your life. How you treat your spouse, how you work, uh, uh, how you handle stress and fear, how you see your past, and how you see your future. You know, in that opening story about the Redskins, about the felons with the tickets, they won their prize. It was hard to believe, but it took them to prison. The thing about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, when we believe it, when we accept it, is that it takes us to a place of freedom. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Let me pray. God, I, I thank you this morning that we can celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus. We can celebrate that the, the fact that he took all of our junk and put it on himself, that he, um, that he went through that pain and agony for us in our place. God, I, I thank you that there's freedom for us because of Jesus' resurrection. Lord, I thank you that he stands at your right hand right now, waiting to come back and take us to you. In his name we pray, amen.